I'd like to thank everyone for your prayers, especially since David and myself spent some time in Southwest Asia a few weeks ago. I think David would still appreciate your prayers because not only did he come back with a tan, he also came back with a little bit of a cough and a little bit of a sore throat, which made it difficult for him to speak. I think after two weeks, it's been nice because last week, jet lag has been very painful. It's been very difficult transitioning back. But thankfully, this morning, I think I'm finally over the vestiges or the leftovers of that jet lag. Although the time zones may have changed, my mind still thinks back to my time in Asia. I think about a woman that David and I had an opportunity to meet by the name of Orchid. She's from an unreached people group called the Bunu. She lives, like many of the unreached people groups that we visited, in a village that was quite remote. There were some paved roads, but there were also a lot of unpaved roads. And there are also very narrow roads, where sometimes only one car could pass, even though two cars were trying to pass on that same road. Sometimes I wondered if we would ever get to the village, because my heart beat so fast as the other car sped toward us, like a game of chicken. But when I met Orchid, I met a young, nice woman. But then there was a tragic story behind that smiling face. You see, Orchid became a believer in college. She placed her faith in Christ, and then she met a boy, an unbelieving boy. And they got into a relationship. They fell in love. And after a night of impropriety, she lost her innocence. And they discovered that she was pregnant. When they discovered that she was pregnant, she discovered also something else, that her boyfriend was also not single, that he was married with children of his own. And so when he discovered that Orchid was pregnant, let's just say things did not go very well. She returned home to her village with a faith in Christ but also the shame of being a single mother. And that story stuck with me because she was the only believer in a village and no one else could encourage her. And as we spoke to her, the guilt of that night of impropriety still was in the forefront of her mind. She couldn't believe that God could forgive her. And who in her village would want to hear a gospel message from a person who was under so much shame? It broke my heart. It made something within me angry and frustrated because why this young woman, this young believer, have to suffer? And this boy seemed to get off so free. She had to raise a young boy, and the boyfriend didn't have to do anything. It seems so wrong. It seems so unjust. 
And I wonder, why would God allow this to happen to one of his own people? And that question, why is it so wrong, continued to rumble in my mind. And it reminded me of this morning's psalm, where we see that wrongdoers prosper, that those who do wrong, those who break the rules, those who do not follow the boundaries that are set before them, for some reason they always do so well. It's the people who have the relationship with the boss that get the promotion, not the one who works hard. It nags and it frustrates something within us because it doesn't seem right. There is a principle in our mind that says, those who do right should prosper. Those who follow the rules should receive the blessing. The one who works the long hours and goes in early to the office and stays up late, they're the ones who should get the promotion. The one who's the nice guy should get the girl. It's the student that studies hard that should get the excellent marks. That there seems to be something within us that says, if someone follows the rules, therefore, they should receive the blessing. Yet oftentimes, we know that is not the case. Oftentimes, it's the bad guy that gets the nice girl. Oftentimes, it's the person, again, who has the connections that moves up in the workplace. It's not about how much he knows. It's not about how much she's learned. It's about who he knows, who she knows. And for some reason, they're the ones who move up. And it's those who break the rules. Those who don't seem to follow the boundaries that are set by our society or by our world that seems to get everything right. And those who do good don't move up in the world. And Asaph, an ancient songwriter, worship leader, struggled with that same question, that same frustration. And like all good songwriters, he put that observation to song in the form of a psalm. It's the 73rd Psalm in the book of Psalms, uh, in the third book. And it's interesting because if you look at the first book within the book of Psalms, it's talking about the blessed is the one who meditates on the law of the Lord. And then it talks about the wicked. And then beginning book two, it talks about what happens when you go through spiritual depression, when you're spiritually dry. In the beginning of the third book, it talks about the question, why is it that even though we do good, even though we follow the rules of Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the wicked still prosper? If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 73. If you're not there already, Psalm 73. And we'll be looking at this particular psalm. And instead of going through all 
of the verses that were read this morning, I want to point out three observations that Asaph made. Because Asaph did see the prosperity of the wicked. And we see that that observation made Asaph envious. It made him want a lifestyle that was like theirs. And we see that in verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What is the prosperity that Asaph saw? I'll draw our attention to three observations. First, the wicked seem to have the healthy bodies. They're the ones who could afford the health insurance to be able to see the doctor, to get the right treatments. They were able to pay for the right drugs so that they rarely got ill. They're the ones who were fat and sleek. We see this in verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now I know in today's parlance, nobody wants to be fat because fat is not healthy. Fat means you've had too much McDonald's or Chick-fil-A, too much fast food, too high cholesterol, too high blood pressure. But for Asaph's day, fat meant fit. It meant trim. It meant slick. It meant that this person, he had time to spend in that gym. He had time to press those weights. He had time to do those push-ups and those sit-ups. That he had a body that drew everybody's eyes as they walked across the street. They were trim, and they were fit. And for some reason, the wicked, they always seemed to never fall ill until death came knocking on their door. Another observation. It seems as though the wicked never experienced any trouble. And we see this in verse 5. It says this, They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Meaning that if there's trouble that comes into their life, all the wicked have to ask and say is, how much is it going to cost to make this go away? It's the wicked who are able to hire lawyers to be able to get their sons and their daughters off of something that they've done wrong. That they're able to sweet-talk that principle so that their child doesn't have to suffer any type of punishment. It's the one who goes around the rules just enough so that anything that's wrong can be expunged from their record. We also see that the wicked, for some reason, they're popular. In verse 10, he writes, Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. For some reason, it's the wicked that draw the attention. If you look even in the Old Testament, as the wicked went to worship idols, as they took advantage of the poor, as they engaged in gross sexually immoral acts, everybody said, I want to be like them. Nobody ever said, I want to be like Jeremiah. Or I want to be like Isaiah. I want to be a prophet for the Lord and suffer. 
No. Everybody saw the wicked and said, I wanted to be like them. They're the ones who drew the crowds. They're the ones who drew everyone's attention. And Asaph's wondering, why? Now, we see wrongdoers prosper even in our day. Why is it that the couple that's just dating is able to conceive after a one-night stand? And a couple that has been married for so long, who's tried for years, they're not able to conceive at all. Why is that? How about the student who comes to class that first day, receives the syllabus, and you don't see him anymore? He doesn't show up to class, except for midterms and finals. And why is it that he gets to set the curve while the student that studies barely makes the curve? That's not fair. Or why is it that when we go check out at HEB and at the magazine stands, we see athletes, actors, actresses who lead lifestyles that are quite questionable? wear products that we want. They have the shirts, the shorts, the pants, the cologne, the perfume that we want to buy. Whatever they eat, we want to eat. Why is it that these people who lead lives that are so questionable, they're the ones who get all the attention. They're the magazines they get bought. It doesn't seem right. What happens to us when we begin to see these things where wrongdoers seem to get all the attention, all the praise, and all the applause? I don't know for you, but for me, it makes me wonder. It makes me doubt. It makes me question. What is the benefit then of following God? I mean, is it even worth it to continue following Christ when there seems to be very little benefit, very little praise, very little approval? I mean, Asaph even questioned that as well. Although Asaph maintained this upright lifestyle, he experienced suffering. I mean, he was a priest. He had to keep his life pure. Yet even though he kept his life pure, suffering was not far from him. Look with me at verse 13. He writes this, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. In verse 14, it talks about a form of strickenness we may not know what that is. It could have been an illness. I can imagine Asaph, after his morning routine, reciting the Shema found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, spending time memorizing portions of Scripture. He would have to go to the temple to get ready for worship services that day. And those stairs, they used to be easy to get up. 
But after years, those knees became worn. They became tired. That every step became painful. And not only was it painful, that when he made it to worship service that morning, the supervising priest asked, Hey, Asaph, didn't you know service started a while ago? What took you so long? And he says, why do I have to deal with this? I memorize the scriptures. I come to worship. I write the songs for worship. And yet, I have to suffer a pain in my knee and a supervising priest who doesn't understand why. What's the point? And then you see that Asaph didn't just wrestle with these thoughts publicly, but he wrestled with them internally. He was an internal processor, that these thoughts continue to rumble about in his mind. We see this in verse 15 through 16. He writes, If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He wasn't like Taylor Swift, who writes a song about every single breakup that she went through. But that Asaph continued to think about this question of wickedness. Why is it that the wicked prosper? Why am I going through this? Why is it that I am feeling this way? Because he knew as a priest, he served as an intercessor between Israel and God, and that he couldn't express his doubts publicly. And not only does Asaph question why is it that we follow God even though the wicked do well, even though the wrongdoers seem to get all the praise, we question the benefits of following God as well. We read our Bibles, we pray every day, we go to small group, we come to church. We even support missionaries as we make our budget. And yet, why is it that we still encounter suffering? Why is it that we still encounter hardship? You may wonder, I followed Christ all my life. I've never dated a non-believer, nor do I ever plan on dating a non-believer. I mentor our youth. I serve in our youth group. I spend long hours as I hear them talk about their breakups, their ups and their downs, their struggles with school. I'm there. My number is on their speed dial. And yet, why is it that I am still single? Why is it that God would not provide me someone even though I've served him so faithfully? Week in, week out. Maybe it's you who wonder, why is it I gave my life to sharing the gospel with people? I went overseas to places many have not had the opportunity to go to. You know, why is it that I have to suffer from chronic illness? Why is it do I have to suffer pain each and every day, even though I've done so much for the Lord? And we wonder, why is it that when there's a car accident caused by a drunk driver, it's a drunk driver that seems to walk away with not a scratch, but no one barely moves in the other car? A person who had too much to drink at a party decides to drive on his own because 
He's too good to call Uber or ask a friend to give him a ride. And as he's speeding down that freeway under the influence or driving while intoxicated, he hits a car of a medical student who spent summers overseas in Africa, serving in the bush, did stints in Congo and Ethiopia and Somalia, desiring to finish medical school and then eventually go overseas to serve in medical missions. Why is it that it's her life that's taken? It does make us wonder, what are the benefits? Is there any blessing at all that comes from following God? And I think at this point of the psalm, I'm like, Asaph, you got me. I feel you. Because why do I have to do this every day? And the principle I think that we have to think about, the, the idea that we need to consider is what will help us regain our spiritual bearings. And it's interesting because God uses the church, the gathering of believers to help us wrestle with those doubts and to come out of it with a better understanding of who God is that God uses the church to help us regain our spiritual bearings. Uh, we see this in verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And what is their end? Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. That when Asaph made his way up to the temple that day, something within him began to work. They begin to regain some of his spiritual bearings. And for those of you who don't know what bearings are, it's a way to get yourself oriented to know where are you. And oftentimes, the way that we get our bearings nowadays is not through a compass and map, but we just whip out our phones and turn on a map app. Google or Apple, your preference, to try and figure out where are we. And when Asaph travels into the temple, he begins to see where he's at. Maybe it's the basin that's used to clean the sacrifice as he hears the mooing of cattle and the buying of sheep. Maybe it's the large altar as he sees the animals burning. The cost that needs to be paid in order for fellowship to be restored with God. And he would look up at the temple. A temple that had an outer court, an inner court, but also a holy place. And inside that holy place, you would find a holy of holies and a box, an ark, holding the covenant, the law of God. And above that ark, he would remember that there's the presence of God. 
and that no one could come into this holy place except for the high priest, and that there exists such a great separation between God and me. God is too big for me to understand. And that he understands ultimately the fate of the wicked. Ultimately, they will perish. Again, I like to point your attention to verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How are they destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors? That those who continue to trust God are able to also enjoy his presence. We see this in verse 21 to 26. Verse 21, which I'll read again, it says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. And it sounds a lot like Job. That when Job asks, why am I suffering? Why is this injustice happening to me? God doesn't write him an email, give him a blog post, send him a sermon manuscript. He explains, very simply, this is the message of Job. I'm God, you're not. And Job says, I repent. It's pretty simple. And Asaph is saying the same thing. He's saying that I was a beast. You are God. How can I possibly understand and comprehend you? Because you are holy. That you do not fit into any human category. And then he remembers that the presence of God will always be with him. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Sleek bodies pass away. As years come, they decay. Sports cars eventually become junk heaps. New phones eventually become refurbished and sold in a third country market. Everything that we hold dear, relationships, family, they will all pass. But what is one thing that will last forever? God. And because you have a relationship with God, he will never depart from you. Tony Evans once said that for the unbeliever, this life is the closest that they'll get to heaven. But for the believer, this life will be the closest they'll ever get to hell. It's this idea that we are people that need to be reminded of our destiny. That we are people saved by grace. That unless God reached down from heaven to grasp our souls, we would never have been able to respond because sin had so corrupted us. And because we place our faith in Christ, because we believe that Christ died for our sins in our place and rose again, his presence will never depart from us. And unlike Israel where the presence of God dwelt in a temple, God's presence dwells within each one of you as a foretaste, as a foreshadowing of an eternity spent with God. So then what are we to do? 
then we need to be able to allow the church to serve as that spiritual compass, to give us direction when we are lost. And you're asking yourself, so how does waking up at 9 o'clock to get to service at 9.15 help me reorient myself to the gospel? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because at church, this is the one opportunity that we have to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to celebrate communion. And at our church, we celebrate it once a month, the first week of every month. Where as we celebrate communion, it's interesting because it engages every single one of our senses. That when we hear the bread broken, as we, not hear, smell the bread, as we touch it, as we taste it, we remember the body that was broken for us and that we are united with other believers in Christ because we partake of that same meal. And that when we take that bread and we taste it, we are saying we are also reconciled with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That when we take that cup of juice in our hands, we recognize the sin that has been forgiven, the great price that was paid, and that as we reflect upon the sins of this past week, we hold it and recognize that there is no sin that cannot be forgiven. Church orients us to God. He, it serves as a compass to direct us to Him, to remind us of what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's not of what we get, but of what we've been blessed by. Oftentimes, when we don't understand grace, we think about what we deserve rather than what we've been given. So what happens when we begin to be reoriented? What happens when we begin to allow ourselves to find our spiritual bearing? We begin to be able to point others to Christ. That when we regain our spiritual bearings, we begin to point others to Jesus. In verse 27 of this psalm, it says this, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. That we understand the fate of the lost, and it should break our hearts. And we should desire to share the gospel story with them, so that they too will believe. But we also share about what God has done in our lives with other believers. In verse 28, it says, For me, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of all your works. That's why at our church, in our small groups, we have sermon-based studies where we talk about how God has used this service to convict us, to challenge us, to encourage us, so that during the week we might be able to share with our brothers and sisters in Christ as we gather together in small group. Not only so that they can also be encouraged by what God has done, but also that they would provide a form of accountability to us that even through the most difficult of times, we continue to hold fast to know that these sufferings will not last, but God will, and that we have eternity with him. A Lutheran scholar once said, Someday the mystery of suffering, of madhouse, mass graves, of widows and orphans will be illuminated. 
Someday will come the hereafter, when we shall learn all the answers. Someday, the paralyzing contradiction between justice on the one hand and life's apparent game of chance on the other will be reconciled. Someday, the tension between rich and poor, between the sunny side of life and the gloomy zones of horror will be equalized. And as believers, as those who have been called out from the world, we look forward to that day.